0: You're listening to Comedy Central. September 11, 2018. From Comedy Central's world news headquarters in New York. This is the Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition.
1: Tonight <laughs> our guest tonight is a great singer and songwriter. Mitski is joining us everybody. <laughs> and she'll be talking with us and playing some music from her new album Be the Cowboy. But first, let's catch up on today's headlines. If you are watching this show in North or South Carolina, please stop. <laughs> please stop watching this show and get somewhere safe. Collision course, Hurricane Florence barreling toward the East Coast. The monster Category 4 expected to become a Category 5 today.
0: The Mid-Atlantic Coast has a giant bullseye on it as Hurricane Florence continues to grow into a monster storm. So far, mandatory evacuation orders are up in parts of three states affecting more than a million people. This could be the largest peacetime evacuation ever seen in the United States.
1: Evacuating more than a million people, that is insane. It was going to be two million people, but when some people heard that they'd have to relocate to Florida, they were just like, oh, we'll take our chances here. It's fine, we're not leaving, (laughs) we're not leaving. And mandatory evacuation has got to suck for everyone, right? Except that one guy who's been looking for the perfect breakup line. He's like, I'm sorry, Vanessa, I can't stay. It's the law, it's the law, I gotta go. (laughs) Yeah, the good news is, the good news is, the storm has made it safely past the Caribbean islands. Uh, because, like, for me, I, I feel bad. They get hit so much, you know, it's year after year, storm after storm. In fact, I think that's how people in the Caribbean got their accents, you know? They probably started with the Queen's English, but then the wind started blowing in a hurricane, and they were just like, yes, it's a beautiful day here in Kingston, and it looks like we're here for a spot of weather. and yeah, the wind, they hit me with a beer party and a blah, <laughs> blah, blah, the face In other news, for anyone who's ever gazed up at a beautiful night sky and thought, wow, I wish there were ads up there, You're in luck.
0: The Washington Post reports on why NASA's
1: next rocket might say Budweiser on the side. The agency is setting up a committee to look into boosting NASA's brand by selling naming rights to rockets and spacecraft. It will also examine allowing astronauts to appear in commercials and on cereal boxes. Okay, I'm not sure NASA really thought this one through. All right, sending ads into space, really? Who's gonna see them? The aliens, that's who's gonna see them. Yeah, rocket goes up. Six months later, a UFO shows up like, take me to your footlocker. We come for great values. And I don't know how iconic space moments would be if they came with ads.
0: That's one small step for man. Every kiss begins with K. All
1: right, let's move on to our top story. As all of you know, today is September 11th. And as humans, we all have our own way of processing what happened that day. But as we know, in life, there are humans, and then there's President Trump. And this morning, the nation's leader sent out a heartfelt tweet that read, 17 years since September 11th, (laughs) exclamation points. Now, this tweet upsets a lot of people because on days such as this, part of any president's job, really, is to articulate the mood of the nation. Whereas this tweet looks like it was ghostwritten by a calendar. And and I'll be honest. Like, I think we should give the guy some credit. First of all, he didn't say there were fine people on both sides, so that's progress. And secondly, the president was not wrong. It is September 11th. That happened 17 years ago, right? Which means this is the most factually accurate thing Trump has tweeted about (laughs) in about three months. So that's a good... That's a step forward. And besides, compared to what Trump normally says about 9-11, today's tweet was a huge step in the right direction you know, which puts his pedometer at one. Because Trump (laughs) has never been able to talk about 9-11 on Twitter or in real life without being totally weird about it. Like, today's tweet was much better than the 9-11 tweet he sent out in 2013.
0: Trump tweeted, quote, I would like to extend my best wishes to all, even the haters and losers on this special date, September 11th.
1: Now, you see that I don't even know where to start, right? (laughs) Best wishes? Haters and losers, special date. Like, it starts out sounding like a wedding invitation, then it becomes a diss track, and then it ends as a birth announcement. That's what it felt like. <laughs> like, Trump tried to commemorate 9-11, and then he ended up writing the world's most confusing hallmark card. That's what it was. <laughs> and, and it turns out, it turns out, this isn't a recent phenomenon, right? Trump has been saying bizarre, emotionally, out-of-step shit about 9-11 since 9-11. On the day it happened, most people were thinking, is my family okay? Could could this be the start of World War III? Donald Trump, on the other hand, was more concerned with bragging rights.
0: You have one of the landmark buildings down in the financial district, 40 Wall Street. Uh, Did you have any damage or did, you know, what's happened down there? 40 Wall Street actually was the second tallest building in downtown Manhattan. And, And it was actually before the World Trade Center was the tallest. And then when they built the World Trade Center, it became known as the second tallest. And now it's the tallest.
1: Okay, so, just so we're on the same page here, two buildings have just collapsed, and Trump's reaction is, I now have the tallest building in downtown Manhattan. That is not a normal thing to say. Like, imagine if after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, FDR was like, December 7th, 1941, a date when my boat became the biggest boat in all of Hawaii. It was a pretty cool day, actually. Some would call it the bomb. <laughs> and by the way, by the way, this was all before Donald Trump started running for president. Once he got on the campaign trail, his track record of talking about 9-11 went from weird to downright hateful.
0: There were people over in New Jersey that were watching it, a heavy Arab population that were cheering as the buildings came down. Not good. Hey, I watched when the World Trade Center came tumbling down. And I watched in Jersey City, New Jersey, where thousands and thousands of people were cheering as that building was coming down.
1: Okay, now, this is a proven lie, right? There were never thousands of Arabs in New Jersey celebrating the towers coming down. But to be fair, we do know that Trump suffers from a rare medical condition that causes him to see large crowds where there were none. (laughs) It makes sense. Oh, and, and his lies about nine, 9-11 didn't stop there, right? Because once he put New Jersey Arabs into the story, he was like, wait, I want to be in the story too.
0: In our darkest moments as a city, we showed the world the very best of America, the firefighters and first responders and the police officers and the Port Authority workers, everyone who helped clear the rubble, and I was there and I watched, and I helped a little bit, but I wanna tell you, those people were amazing. I'm sorry, what?
1: (laughs) How do you help with 9-11 a little bit? (laughs) Like, you either help or you don't. What, did he go up to a cop and be like, hey, officer, you got a little schmutz right there. All right, (laughs) I've done my part. Good luck, everybody. And look, I can't say for sure that he's lying. I'm just suspicious of someone who says that because Trump has never taken a little credit for anything. Right? If he had helped at all, he would have been like, I cleaned up all of 9-11, folks. I was the first and last responder all by myself. <laughs> I also struggle to believe that someone who was helping can't remember what day it was.
0: And it's very close to my heart because I was down there and I watched our police and our firemen down on 7-Eleven, down the World Trade Center, right after it came down.
1: 7-Eleven? How do you mess up the dates of an event named after the dates? You just have to remember three numbers. Like, I wonder what happens when he has an emergency. Hello, police! It's an emergency! Wh- what, 7-Eleven? Oh, I dialed 711. Well, as long as I have you. Let me get a Slurpee and a wrinkly hot dog, please. <laughs> Honestly, Trump is so bad with 9-Eleven, it feels like at some point in his presidency he's gonna mix it up completely with a different holiday. And, like, I wouldn't be shocked if he shows up to ground zero in a Halloween costume, right? Although knowing Trump, he'd just roll with it. He'd be like, I'm wishing everyone a spooktacular (laughs) 9-11. Look, what I'm saying is, all things considered, I understand this tweet from today might have pissed off some people, but it's not really that bad. In fact, it's probably Trump's best 9-11 observance yet. And if you don't think so, you're a hater and a loser. (laughs) We'll be right back. The midterms are exactly eight weeks from today. That's right. We are just one dog pregnancy away, people. And you take care of those little puppies, okay? You take care of them. No, what are you doing? Think about the puppies. Anyway, there's a lot at stake. Democrats need 23 seats to win back the House of Representatives and retake some power in Washington. So this weekend, they turned on the Barack signal, and he
0: answered the call. He's back. President Obama returns to the campaign trail for the first time in 2018. He chooses Orange County as his first stop, proof of just how important the OC is for Democrats this year. We have the chance to flip the House of Representatives and make sure the real checks and balances in Washington. We're going to kick off our bedroom slippers, we're putting on our marching shoes, we are going to go up and we're going to start taking some clipboards at.
1: You know everyone's been missing Obama when even a clipboard gets a huge chair. Everyone's like, yeah, he's got office supplies! It holds all the paper and the band! But I do get why they were pumped, though. This was Obama's first time campaigning with 2018 midterm candidates. But why did he start in Orange County, California? Well, Michael Kostler is here to explain in our continuing midterms coverage of Democalypse 2018. So, uh, Michael Costa, you've been following this race really closely.
0: Yeah, uh, this race and all the races. You name a race, and I'm the expert. That's why... that's why everyone around the office calls me the racist. That's... well, that's not why they call you that, Michael. So let's talk about the California's 48th Congressional District, a.k.a. the O.C. The district has voted Republican for a long time, but in 2016, they flipped and went for Hillary. So the Democrats' hopes are up, like when you download Tinder, but they could be in for a huge letdown, like when you use Tinder. Well, well, Michael, for, for Democrats, I guess it does depend on the strength of their candidates. Actually, Trevor, for Democrats, it depends on the strength of their candidate. Harley Ruda. Now, Ruda's got an impressive resume. Not only is he the top Google result for a white dad stock photo, but he's also been a successful lawyer and businessman. So so Ruda is running as a Democrat now, but didn't he used to be a Republican? Yeah, well, so what? People can change, okay? You know, look at me. I used to be a MILF hunter. Now I run a MILF sanctuary. (laughs) The point is Democrats want anyone who can beat the incumbent, Dana Rohrbacher. Now, I know his name sounds like he owns a thriving pretzel company, but he doesn't. (laughs) Here's his deal. He's a conservative to the core. He's voted with Trump 84% of the time, and he wrote the speeches that Reagan would read. <clears throat> Sorry, Trevor, let me explain. A- American presidents used to read. <laughs> what... <sighs> what makes Rohrabacher interesting is that Orange County isn't the only place he's been representing all this time. Orange County Congressman Dana Rohrabacher, dubbed Putin's favorite congressman, for his pro-Russia politics. When the Russians went in and took over Crimea, it was he who gave a sort of qualified defense of that. And when the Russians were fighting the Georgians, he was on the Russian side, he's always, He's always with the Russians. Behind closed doors, House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy joked, quote, there's two people I think Putin pays, Rohrbacker and Trump. Mr. Putin is demonized by a lot of people here. And when he's ever watching out for Russia's self-interest, Putin has a right to watch out for the interests of the people there, just as the way we do in the United States. Wow, we finally found the one American who rooted against Rocky. <laughs> And Trevor, this isn't just a geopolitical relationship. It's gotten geophysical. Listen to this.
2: Some say that Vladimir Putin rules with an iron fist. Well, California Congressman Dana Rohrbacher found that out literally when he arm wrestled the Russian leader back in the early 90s. He's
0: a little guy, and, but boy, I'll tell you, he put me down in a millisecond. He is tough. You know, his, his muscles are just unbelievable. Of course, Putin's muscles are unbelievable. He's Russian. There's a 75% chance he was doping. My, my, Michael, this is, this is kind of bizarre, man. I mean, you would think Rohrbacher's open love for Putin could hurt him in the campaign. Yeah, well, right now, Ruda and Rohrbacher are neck and neck in the polls, which means if Rohrbacher loses, Putin will lose his top congressman, and then he'll have to settle for only having the president. Michael Costa, everybody. We'll be right back.
1: back to The Daily Show. My guest tonight is a critically acclaimed musician whose new album is called Be The Cowboy. Please welcome Mitski. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me. Was that
1: sign language for I like your shirt? Yes,
2: yeah, she has my shirt on.
1: Like your personal shirt or a shirt of yours? <laughs> Like, I don't know what that means.
2: My, I'm sorry, my merch shirt. Oh,
1: okay, okay. So you got fans you got fans in the audience wearing the shirts. Because I just saw you walk out and you were like, that's my shirt.
2: <laughs> you took my shirt. Yeah, I
1: didn't, I didn't know. I was like, this is where we handle the beef. Uh, <laughs> welcome to the show. Congratulations on a new album. I, I'm dying to find out, like, what is the message you're trying to get out with be the cowboy? What are you trying to get people to do?
2: Well, when I say cowboy, I don't mean, like, the working cowboy of today. I literally mean, like, the cowboy myth, like the um, the Marlboro commercial cowboy right. where there's like a white man leaning on a fence and squinting, uh-huh. or like um, Clint Eastwood, you know, riding into town, like that kind of cowboy. There's such an arrogance and a freedom to it right. that is so appealing to me, especially because I'm an Asian woman. Um, and I I think, I walk into a room and feel like I have to apologize for existing, right. you know, and I just sort of, I was so attracted to that idea of freedom and arrogance and not having to apologize. So, this album, I think its protagonist is someone like me, Right. Um, who feels like, they want to channel or embody that energy of a cowboy.
1: Would you, would you say that growing up for yourself culturally, is Asian culture the furthest thing from cowboyness? Yeah. Is that, like, <laughs> like, the complete opposite?
2: Yeah, I would say so. Like,
1: you'd, like, kick, kick in the doors, and then you'd be like, sorry about that?
2: Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I think the cowboy, the idea of the cowboy is so American because right. the idea of a man riding into town wrecking shit and then walking out like he's the hero is just
1: so. That's the way life should be lived. That is the way. Like I like that. Be the cowboy. I want to be the cowboy. That sounds like fun. Yeah, exactly. Walking around, break some shit, and then walk out like. Yeah. Now have a good be, day. Be
2: be the cowboy. Yeah, I'm
1: yeah. going to be the cowboy in life. Um, this album is 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 one where you've I I feel like you've dug into the depths of your soul, which is what you always do when you're writing yeah. your songs and your music. Um, you've mentioned the loneliness that you've encountered when touring on the road. Mm-hmm. You know, like you, you you traveled alone for a long time. Did you ever think of like bringing up, like just adding a, like a backup triangle player <laughs> just to have a guest or somebody?
2: Well, the thing, the, the lonely thing about tours is it's not um, personal or individual loneliness because you're always surrounded by people on tour. Right. But there's a sort of structural societal loneliness because you're always in a different time zone. You're far away from everyone you know. Right. Your work is so different from everyone else's. None of your friends can really relate to your experiences. So little by little, you kind of become more and more solitary. I think that's the kind of loneliness I'm talking about or I experience on tour.
1: It's, it's interesting because many of the songs, when you listen to them, you'll be like, oh, that's, that's about a, a love interest. That, that's someone in your life. That's, mm. but, but it's not, though. It's about the music. You're writing love songs about music.
2: Yeah, I do that a lot where it's just, I think music is just my closest relationship. It's been my only friend sometimes growing up because I grew up moving around. I didn't know anybody, but I would, you know, play music or sing music to myself. Um, And I don't know, it's like my family. And so a a lot of my songs are just about how much I love music or, you know, it's kind of hard being a musician. So sometimes um, when I... When I sing about being spurned by a lover, it's actually f- the feeling of being spurned by music or my career in music and mm-hmm. how it's just not going well.
1: When you, when you write the music, you put a lot of effort into it. And yet, I, you know, I always read these reviews about you where people make it sound like you just have these diary entries and then you sing them to a tune. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes it like they'll, they'll write about you, like, oh yeah, what Mitski does is she just has a day and then she sings about dear diary. <laughs> yeah. You know, but you, but you, you actually work these ideas out. You try and craft, you know, a story that that you weave through the album. Yeah. Do you do you wish there was a way that people would know that you're doing that, or or do you like the fact that some people feel like it's just free flowing and and easy going?
2: Yeah, I go back and forth because on one hand, I would like the audience or the listener to get whatever they need to out of a song. So if they need to imagine me writing in my diary, then I guess that's healthy. But the thing is, uh, it's so gendered, you mm-hmm. know? I don't think I would get as many um, critiques where people say my music is confessional or raw if I wasn't who I am. Right. And I think there there is so much effort um, in, like, taking away my authority or autonomy over my own music because... It's coming out of my own brain, and I have control over my own brain. But for some reason, <laughs> for some reason, people really need to imagine me as some sort of vessel or vessel for emotion or, like, vehicle for music instead of the creator.
1: That's interesting. When you, when you write for others, though, which is something you've started doing, you, you're on a different journey, though, because, you, you know, you've written for yourself, but I've noticed that you've started writing for other artists. Do you write for them, thinking of them, or do you write a song and then go, this song could be sung by somebody else? Is it more liberating or do you find it more constricting?
2: I think it's liberating. I've been enjoying it just because there. sometimes I write songs that I feel like I can't serve with my own voice or with my own persona, I just oh. couldn't live up to it. And so writing for other people, I feel like I can channel all of these different maybe personalities in me that maybe I can't even express very well, but someone else can express for me. Right. Yeah, so I, I've been really enjoying writing for other people.
1: Oh, because I, I, I'm starting a band, Trevor and the Ebolas, and <laughs> we, should, we should talk. We should talk after this. We, we should, should talk about
2: then... the band name.
1: <laughs> I, I work really hard on that. <laughs> And now I feel judged. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you I'm for looking forward me. to your performance. Be the Cowboy is available now.
0: The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, ears edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com.